This is a conversation with author and artist S.L. Lim on climate change, capitalism, and making art during the end of the world. I discuss with S.L. how art tries to engage with climate change, capitalism, and oppose forces like necropolitics and white supremacy. S.L., who is based out of Australia, also discusses with me how her perspective on these issues, both critical and attempts to build solidarity to save the world, has been influenced by her time in Australia, and what Australian politics have to offer or not offer some of the issues we discuss today. It's a great discussion on art, its importance, and how it can be used to build solidarity and offer new perspectives on the world. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. And for written interviews, articles, and essays, you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. Here's my conversation now with S.L. Lim. I hope you enjoy our dialogue today. My name is SLM and I'm a novelist and the author of two novels, Real Difference and Revenge. Um, I also do a little bit of political writing and I'm part of the Out of the Woods Collective, which is a small C communist, anarchist, anti-racist, queer collective investigating the twinned nightmares of climate change and capitalism. I know you're a very well-regarded um, artist, um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, what value is there in fiction or the creative side uh, in terms of dealing with some of these consequences and dystopic results in the real world? How has art allowed you to explore, find catharsis, and perhaps uh, manifest that catharsis in the real world in a way that is valuable and maybe not uh, discussed as much as, you know, reading reports over and over about climate change or watching news about climate change? Where does fiction or the arts help us uh, do battle with these things? Honestly, in many ways, I would say that it by and large hasn't. I would say that in terms of both grappling with, yeah, as you say, the sort of turn towards overt fascism and the sort of entry of overt fascist and white supremacist actors into the sort of official institutions of power of the state, and of course to do with climate change, these subjects have been ignored by the overwhelming majority of certainly novelists and where they have been addressed. The nature of how they've been addressed has been, to my mind, somewhere between glib and actively offensive. So one example which I would bring up is that very, very celebrated novel, Crudo by Olivia Lang, which was billed as a novel about Trump and about fascism, and which is an actual fact, a novel about the person, a person living quite a, you know, comfortable bourgeois life and being on the internet and occasionally feeling a level of background stress in the, in a, in a, in a time of uprising fascism and climate change, 
but essentially this has no effect on either her material life or the substantive choices that she makes. And the, the line that I keep going back to in that particular novel is describing the events at Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally as a game on both sides, which of course is identical to Trump's phrasing in terms of drawing equivalence between the white supremacists and the very brave anti-fascists who resisted them. So I guess, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't want to say, I don't want to make any grand proclamations about the state of the novel or the state of art at the moment, but I think there has broadly been a failure. And I wouldn't say anything too sweeping about the meaning that we should attach that failure. Like most things, most of the time are bad, you know, and I think that absolutely applies to art. Most of the time you try to do something and it doesn't work. So the fact that no one has arranged this perfect string of words which explains ourselves to ourselves and explains the moment that we're living in to ourselves is not necessarily an indictment of anyone in particular. Where novelists have, I think, tried to address these things, there've been a couple of, you know, there's, there's been some absolutely spectacular, kind of beautiful failures, I would say. So there's a book like The Dispossessed um, by Ursula Guin, which is, of course, that classic of anarchist fiction, and it imagines a sort of speculative anarchist society. And what I find really interesting about that book is that it's this book which is, you know, critically celebratory, but celebratory of the idea of revolution, but which is not particularly sympathetic towards revolutionary. So it depicts the society after the revolution has occurred, and it depicts what it would be like to be essentially a normie within that society, you know, quite a quite a norm-abiding, normative person. I'm overusing the word norm a bit. But the kind of psychology and the kind of interior experience of the person who, you know, engages in the project of total disorder, which is pursuing, you know, a change to the present state of things, is not something that Le Guin is particularly sympathetic to in that book or elsewhere. And similarly in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry of the Future, I haven't read it yet actually, but I'm given to understand that it takes place in this world, the speculative future, and it's understood in the speculative future that a sort of radical, you know, diversity of tactics, climate movement, which, you know, which deploys things like assassinations and violence and sabotage exists and was intrinsic to achieving some of the, some of the gains which have occurred in this society. And yet these people are not given primacy in the narrative and their experience and their interiority is not something which is explored. So that's a very roundabout way of saying that I think that art can have value in illuminating and, and exploring the interiority of people who pursue revolutionary change. I think that that could be a very powerful thing. But by and large, that's not what it's doing. But also just that in the US, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but the, at, particularly on, on the quote unquote left, which I'm glad more people are putting into parentheses because it's, it's not a useful heuristic. We don't criticize people for the most part. And we don't criticize our celebrities. America, we worship, you know, our, our artistic celebrities, and we also worship our political celebrities. So I'm wondering for your own work or your own thinking in um, your collective or just as an individual, what have your thoughts been on celebrity, the need to criticize it more, and 
trying to avoid it, you're an artist. Uh, I guess what your personal relationship to it is as well. That's a really powerful question. I mean, I'm 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 a tiny little worm. Um, you know, the other day I was on the bus and I read this thing. You know that meme which was going around, which said, "Would you still love me if I was a worm?" And I almost teared up because I identified so strongly with the worm. But um, apart from that little segue, yeah, I mean. Celebrity is not so much in, in, a, in a personal sense, it's not so much an issue in Australia, both because, you know, I write, I write literary fiction, that's an obscure thing, you know, and, and um, at the same time, there is, you know, a dynamic where as your work gains more success, it's very difficult to opt out, you know, your face will be sold in lieu of your work and I'm seeing that with myself and 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 so you have to work out the relationship that you have with that and the word that I think about is not so much celebrity but clout so I would define clout as any kind of power which arises from having this image or being perceived in a particular way and so you get power almost as an emergent phenomenon out of the social dynamics surrounding that. And the interesting thing that I've seen in my personal and my artistic and my political life is that clout absolutely does attach to celebrity, but perhaps because I'm operating in a slightly different context from the US, I mean, it's much much smaller, the communities that I move in. I guess the idea of an Australian left-wing celebrity, I don't know what that would, I don't know what that would even be, you know, like, but clout happens when power and um, this this idea of political rightness, you know, this idea of, of a liberatory politics, which in my view is always something collectively produced or, you know, knowledge in a liberatory politics. No one owns an idea, you know, no one is the sole parent of any idea. And what can happen is that I suppose cults of personality attach around particular people or or power and clout attaches around people who have a particular image. And in, in, in a bizarre way, it can accrue out of something like the opposite of the celebrity and that people sort of reject, um, and renounce sort of any interaction with other people who don't meet arbitrary standards of purity as self-defined and gain this kind of gravitational power in within a small circle, but which can be very, very influential within that circle. So in terms of my own relationship with it, I guess this is something which is always evolving. And if you if you think that you've solved it, you know, you haven't, because these relational dynamics are always changing. And whenever you get any success, that puts you in a structural position, which is different from other people, and that is power. And there is any any kind of differential power or differential access to resources is something which creates the potential for abuse and misuse. So I guess it's something I'm still thinking about. Um, The two things that I try to do is that, you know, my artistic work is mine and my artistic work attaches to me as an expression of my own experience and my my own feelings about things really. But my political work, I really, or my political thinking, I really try to do that in a collective way and so I quite like that about for instance out of the woods that like we don't put 
our names on things. I don't feel the need to um, have my name attached to any particular sentence I wrote or idea that I wrote. And, you know, I'm very, I, I really want other people to take ideas which I've worked on and use them and forget where they came from and adapt them to their circumstances. Turning to Australia, um, I, I, I'm very curious, sort of under the reign of Scott uh, Morrison, where he's not, at least on a on an international level, got on the same level of vitriol that, uh, let's say, a Boris Johnson has, or obviously a Donald Trump has. But I always, every time I check in with Australia, there are these very, I would almost call them undertones of something darker that lurks beneath the surface of his politics and sort of his political vision. Um, it's never explicit, but it just feels in reading the coverage, it feels very dark. And I'm wondering for listeners, if you could articulate a bit about why, as someone who's not an Australian, but is attuned to global politics, one might get this sense of darkness from the political vision of Scott Morrison? And where do you see it explicitly connecting to things like the sanctioned white supremacy of a Donald Trump, the necropolitics of a Yair Bolsonaro towards the Amazon rainforest? Scott Morrison is a terrible human being, but one thing I actually push back against is the personalization of the white supremacist nature of the Australian state in Scott Morrison. So you have a whole lot of people, for instance, from the from the Labour Party or supporters of the Labour Party, which is the party which is in opposition. And they will be very, very posturing about, um, about their opposition to Scott Morrison. So there's this hashtag which goes around called Scotty from marketing and, you know, denigrating his, his, his stupidity. He's not a particularly smart person. He once shat his pants in a McDonald's in Engadine. Um, that actually happened. There, was <laughs> there were murals about it, you know, remember Engadine Maccas. Um, but... You know, the white supremacist nature of the Australian state is bipartisan and it is embedded and normalised at so many levels of society that in some ways I feel that personifying it in the person of Scott Morrison is a little bit of a misnomer. So to give you an example, border policy, you know, you have... These prison camps, you know, concentration camps, really, where there are, you know, there are, there are adults and children incarcerated for for years and years and years behind behind razor and electric wire in situations which are so terrible that you know children under ten regularly attempt suicide. You know, people have died of an infected foot. So you know, absolutely appalling stuff. And this is a bipartisan thing. The person who introduced mandatory detention was a Labour Prime Minister, Paul Keating, who is in fact celebrated by elements of the so-called, you know, progressive society in Australia for his supposedly progressive attitudes towards, for instance, Indigenous people and multiculturalism. So it was established by um, Paul Keating and has been upheld by successive Labour and Liberal governments ever since and worsened by successive Labour and Liberal governments ever since. So on, on, on sort of every every terrible thing, be it the torture of um, migrants, be it um, fossil fuel expansion, be it, yeah, normalised normalized white supremacy at, at every level, 
it's bipartisan and as you say it is very dark and it's something which I don't I, I get now that I've started to talk a little bit more to people overseas I've started to you know I mean the stuff which you've normalized and you know it's wrong but I remember there was this outrage um in the UK recently because there was talk about detention camps for migrants and there was this argument about the cost of them and then people would say what are we doing is that really our main issue that a concentration camp is expensive you know that's 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 obviously a morally appalling argument and also I would say quite ineffective because it sort of reifies the right of the of the so-called native population to regulate who and who isn't 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 human and who does and doesn't deserve freedom to move and so on but that argument that concentration camps are too expensive has been a mainstay of the progressive mainstream sort of refugee rights movement a refugee advocacy movement in Australia since I was a little child. And so things which are just seen, particularly to do with borders, as being extreme and kind of like, oh God, we've stepped off into, you know, this this mirror world of terribleness in other parts of the world, have been utterly normalized here. And you know, historically it goes, it goes right back. You have um, you know, Australia is a country which was founded, really, Federation, there were these sort of disconnected colonies and it was founded largely to implement the white Australia policy so there could be a unified policy about excluding Chinese and um, Kanaka workers um, and there are still you know there are still mass graves of, of Kanaka workers in Queensland and um, you know you have the descendants of people who who owned those sugar plantations people like I think I think Fraser Anning he's this he's, he's this overtly almost Nazi politician in Australia um in positions of power so yeah I, I keep saying this i would not personify it in scott morris and this shit is dark but it's dark across the board in the u.s we've we've seen this sinophobic rhetoric we've seen this um anti-black rhetoric and i'm wondering with uh australia um how do these um violences manifest themselves within society in a way that is both unique but would also contest connect to these other violences we're seeing against minorities in white settler uh, nation states. And I know for in, uh, indigenous Aboriginal, a movement that's been going around, but again, it's I don't get as much information being outside of Australia, is that a lot of indigenous uh, Aboriginals have died in police custody, that they'll just die in jail. They just, they, they, they go to jail one night, the next day they're dead. Um, what would be some of the violences that white nationalism uh, is manifesting in Australia and how do those connect to these other violences in, in similar settler colonial nations? So, I mean, I think that the sort of normalized and embedded violence against indigenous people in Australia, as you say, is, you know, it, it, it takes all kinds of, it takes all kinds of horrific forms. So you've got that sort of quite direct violence of simply being murdered by cops and that, that of course happens. In, I mean, it happens exactly as you imagine it would happen, I suppose. Um, you've got deaths in custody. You've got, I mean, the, the, the sort of nature of how the violence, I mean, I, I'm, try, I'm tr actually trying to work out whether I should say this or not, but because it's just so horrific and I don't want people to be traumatized. But I mean, yeah, I think it's a thing that people, yeah, people people need to know. I guess one one fairly, you know, 
not atypical case in Australia was where an Indigenous man was arrested and thrown in the back of a police van and driven, I think, through an extremely hot climate for many hours. And because the van was not protected from heat, you know, he he, he died this terrible, terrible death, you know, being cooked to death. And, and, and no one was, you know, no one was there was really no punishment for the officers involved. And that is a fairly, I think, representative statement of the sort of value which the carceral system in Australia attaches to Indigenous life. And yes, so there's that. And then I, I think the other, there, there are so many, there are so many terrible things, I suppose. The other thing which I think is less known is this kind of environmental violence which attaches to our conversation about climate change. So for the last couple of years, there's been really this major water shortage on the Murray-Darling River system. And this water shortage is in part caused by climate change exacerbated drought. And it's also caused by the establishment of crops, you know, overwhelmingly owned by white settlers on the banks of the, on the banks of, you know, drawing water from the Murray-Darling, so cotton plantations, in fact. And so you have these largely indigenous towns and communities deprived of, you know, potable drinking water for really extended periods of time, you know, 18 months or longer than that, and where people are effectively dependent on water being, you know, chucked in from outside um, bottled water, you know, really, really mutual aid schemes effectively happening at a very, at a very kind of peer-to-peer -peer level. So, I mean, it, it's extraordinary some of the work that some people have managed to do in doing this. And it's extraordinary that this work has been done in the face of that kind of indifference of the official institutions of the Australian state. And so that kind of environmental violence absolutely contributes to the foreshortened statistically lives of Indigenous people in Australia. And then you have that cultural violence or that cultural genocide, I suppose, where there's this, this kind of flagrant disrespect, you know, the destruction of, of sites of art, which are, you know, maybe tens of thousands of years old by mining companies, Cetra Tinto or BHP, and really not much legal or financial consequence for that. And if there is a consequence, it's something which has really been priced into the company's deliberations in terms of investing, if you like, in that destruction to start off with. Do you see then for these global movements like, let's say, Black Lives Matter, could you just talk a bit about any reflections you've had on these global questions from your particular position in Australia and observations that you've made? I'm going to be a little bit careful about this, and this relates to what we were talking about earlier to do with celebrity and clout. So I'm very conscious that I'm here talking to you, um, you know, largely because I have a particular profile as an artist. And I also, of course, have my own views and I have my own work in a political sense, but that work is collectively produced. And I want to be very cautious about using this platform or whatever to talk about it when, you know, I am one person and I don't necessarily want to center my own thoughts in these issues or this work. In terms of connection to global movements for black liberation, 
So around the time that Black Lives Matter was first becoming a thing, quote unquote, in the US or, or saying, I remember that there was there was this letter which went around, I think, on medium.com in the US, which was like an open letter to my Asian parents about Black Lives Matter. And it was it was written largely, I think, from a liberal perspective, but you know, it was it was earnest, it was kind, and it was a sort of template for people of various Asian diasporas to start confronting anti-blackness within their own families and circles. And that was, you know, that was that was on medium.com or whatever. And that was seen around the world. And that was seen by people in Australia. And I think for some Asian people such as myself in Australia, the idea of an anti-racist politics centered around our position as settlers and around solidarity with the indigenous owners of this land was quite an exhilarating one. You know, I mean, it, 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 it was a movement away from that sort of liberal conception of anti-racism as, I guess, I guess seeking, seeking parity or seeking approval within the arbiters of, of what a good society looks like who are still, who are, who are essentially white or, or, or you know, wh the, the white, white liberals remaining the arbiters of, you know, what, what a good society looks like and, and really thinking of the kind of total transformation of our relationship with ourselves and each other and the land that we live on which is implied by an anti-colonial politics. You know, there have been movements in Australia around that sort of seeking solidarity between Asian people and Indigenous people through an anti-colonial politics. There've been, and there are ongoing, you know, things like, for instance, the water crisis I described earlier, there's been amazing work, which, you know, some honestly often very young people have done transporting that water and providing that providing that service. Um, you know, I, I'm really careful not to talk about this because again, this is very precious to many people. It's very private to many people and it's not something which I personally, I think have the right or should have the right to define. And even if I'm not, you know, I can say that this is just my opinion, the fact that I am talking on this platform and others are not gives me a certain position in terms of defining things. So I, I think I will simply repeat that these overtures and, and, and emergent forms of solidarity are ongoing. I think they are growing. I think they are growing in part invigorated by that internationalist perspective and by movements in, movements in the US and elsewhere and in part by attention to the particularities of our own circumstances and this is something, this is something very, very, very dear to me, I would say. So uh, to ask one more political question, and then I'll conclude with a couple on the environment from the perspective of Australia. Um, I was reading Aditya Ball in the New Left Review, and I, I love Aditya's work. He does a lot of work on the farmers' protest, radical politics in India, and the ethno-nationalism or uh, the, the many hyphen nationalisms of Narendra Modi's BJP. And he was talking about in 
India that there is a growing political fatigue with Modi, uh, in particular his uh, incredibly incompetent handling of COVID-19 has caused uh, an increasing backlash or nervousness amongst the large uh, Hindu middle class who are, I believe, make up the, the bulk of BJP supporters. But he was saying it's very difficult for, let's say, liberals within India, um, and that's a very nebulous, generous term uh, because there's so many ways to define that, but basically a liberal opposition for Modi, no one seemingly is able to emerge, and the only real effective electoral message against Modi has basically been anyone but Modi, which is not, I think, a very stable framework for opposing the fascism, ethno-nationalism, sectarianism uh, that Narendra Modi and his BJP represent. Similarly, in Australia, I'd imagine a lot of the contradictions of necropolitical white supremacist capitalism cannot be resolved um, in the binary of a liberal conservative um, framework because they're two sides of the same coin, both beholden to this rotten core of settler, colonial, uh, uh, carceral capitalism, all the isms, all the bad things. I'm wondering what liberalism looks like in Australia. Is there a cogent rebuttal to the vision of Morrison and, and the more right-wing elements of Australia? Or is it increasingly just an anyone but Morrison sort of framework like we're seeing in places like India? And I think that's why a lot of people voted for Joe Biden. It was not enthusiasm for Sleepy Joe. It was more just anyone but Trump. Yeah, and so that's what they're, that, that, that's what certainly the Labour Party is running at the moment. I mean, there, 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 there's really this sort of... Actually, there's a very funny um, Australian, I can't remember which comedian who it was, who said something like, um, Australia has avoided the sort of crushing disappointment of a, of a left or leftish, you know, leader, like, or, you know, attempted challenger, such as Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, by simply not having anyone like that at all. So in a mainstream sense, there is fucking nothing. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot, that may be an overstatement, but actually it's not. There is fucking nothing. So at a federal level, there's the Australian Labour Party and the strategy seems to oscillate between small target stuff or trying to outright wing the right. So um, actually to, to, to connect to something you were saying earlier about, about about anti-Asian racism right now in the state where I live, New South Wales, there's this contest for the sort of leader of the opposition position. And one of the front runners is this former leader of the opposition who made essentially a great replacement speech. So he made this speech about, you know, our children are being forced to flee. You know, we need to secure the future of our children who are fleeing from these Asians with PhDs. Um, and you know, in terms of a liberal, a small L liberal response to this or repudiation of this, there hasn't been and there won't be. Everyone's a cunt. That's my, <laughs> that's my considered evaluation of the political landscape. And then outside of mainstream politics, I mean, you know, the, 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 there, there are certainly people of integrity, especially, you know, there's a couple in the minor parties, but out of electoral politics, I wish I could say something hopeful. 
Um, <laughs> I really wish I could, but I don't think. I mean, I, and and it could very well be that due to my own my own position as a person, I'm I'm not I'm not seeing it, you know. But okay, I will say that the one thing which gives me hope is some of the kinds of thought and organizing in terms of anti-colonial solidarity, specifically theorized and enacted by Asian migrants, partly because that's me and so of course I relate to it, but also partly because I think some of the ideas people are coming up with and the sort of methods that they're, 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 they're dreaming up and, and, and implementing to put those ideas into practice. I really, I mean, maybe I haven't read enough. I just haven't seen anything like it actually from, from sources in say the US or the UK or whatever. So I, is there stuff which is very generative and very beautiful and hopeful? Yes. Does it have purchase in a kind of mass popular sense? No. It's very odd because so many of these other countries from uh, the United States with the George Floyd uprising, the farmers movement in India, the democracy movements of Southeast Asia, the anti-coup movement of Myanmar, uh, the uprising in Sudan, and so on and so forth, reveal the central contradictions that the state cannot resolve through its agreed upon political actors or parties. Um, these are movements that are deeply destabilizing to the state, not you know because of anything like military power or things like that. It's it's just that they reveal the hollowness and the lie at the center of so many of these nation states um, for a whole host of reasons, particularly in settler states or states that increasingly rely on ethno-nationalism as their main bulwark of stability and legitimacy. Were there any solidarity or very interesting aspects of solidarity you saw in Australia for these movements that maybe in time Australians will use as frameworks or points of inspiration to better realize and organize against the central contradictions of Australia's settler colonial authoritarian capitalism? I mean, I really hope so. I think that the discourse, quote unquote, in Australia is quite insular, partly because of geographical location, partly because Australia has, like I said, been so 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 spared from a lot of the terrible things in the pandemic and because of the wealth largely out of, you know, export of fossil fuels. But, you know, the kind of wealth here means that the sort of terrible depredations of poverty which, which, which have existed in, in other places have not created, you know, a set of people with, with, with that. I mean, like you say, those contradictions are not, not so obvious when people are relatively comfortable in a global sense. Um, so in terms of drawing inspiration from, I mean, I don't know what Australians are. In some sense, it's, it's, it's this made up identity, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think that in fact, any identity which coheres around itself, around this, this, this idea of being Australian, is pretty much inherently reactionary, stupid, mm -hmm. and crap. Like, 
there is no like like you know Australia as a federation you know it, it comes from the desire to implement the white Australia policy from the beginning it has been centered around extractive and destructive settler colonial industries in terms of agriculture and mining it's founded on genocide it's founded on destruction it's founded on imperialism imperialism outside of its borders and colonial extraction within. And so the idea of a renewed yet left Australia is something which I think I find not particularly plausible. Um, this is one of the slogans which, but, but yeah, but, but the idea, the fact that the fact that the slogan abolish Australia. So, oh, here's an interesting thing. This is, might be a little bit hopeful. So once a year, there's a day called Australia Day, which is supposed to be a holiday, and it's just fucking stupid. Um, and people sort of have, you know, little flags in their cars, and it's kind of hot, and they, like, stand in inflatable pools in their backyard and hold stubbies and just kind of talk to each other about dumb crap. And over the last few years, there's been a move to sort of resist this naming of Australia Day and to call it Invasion Day, you know, to commemorate the theft of Indigenous land. Mm -hmm. And each year there is a rally. And each year that rally gets bigger. It was tiny. And now each year it's huge. And there is a social thing where... You know, 10 years ago, that's what you would do. You would, you would, you would stand in that stupid pool, that stupid study, stubby. And now people at least understand, I think, not, not necessarily, people who, even people in a centrist sort of small L liberal type, type thing, they understand that there is something wrong and something kind of off about Australia Day. And so when you see the chance in the Invasion Day rally, you know, the anti-Australia Day rally, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stupid liberal stuff that has changed the date, you know, who cares? Um, but there's also chants and banners saying things like abolish Australia. And there's a lot more people behind that than there were last year or two years ago or three years ago or five years ago. And so I don't know what everyone is thinking. I can't possibly know that. But there is popular support building behind, albeit from a very, very low base, behind the idea of the abolition of Australia. One of the most shocking images uh, that I saw was uh, of, from Australia. I think it was in 2019, 2020 time is a flat circle these days. I have no idea what fucking year or day it is. But um, it was just, I think, a charred koala dead hanging from a tree. And this was during the, uh, the huge series of wildfires that uh, even had perhaps former supporters of Scott Morrison nearly ready to punch his face in, at least in media videos that, that I saw um, in regards to his climate denial as, as well as his seeming superhuman power. Uh, to not have any empathy for for any other human being, he he really is uh, anti charismatic as a politician. Um, so for Australia's um, complicated role in in the global capitalist system as one of the largest exporter of mass climate death uh, via fossil fuels, through as one of sort of the linchpins of global necropolitics. How have these events um, in recent years in Australia impacted uh, 
perhaps we could split it by demographics rather than politics, uh, younger people and older, older people in Australia, how does seeing a burned koala or burned kangaroo by the thousands or the mass bleaching of coral reefs or the disappearance of Tasmania's uh, kelp rainforests, how has the, the, the mass death of Australia's global ecosystems impacted the discourse on climate change? Actually, can I just start with a very small anecdote? I was just trying to think about 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 the way that the landscape has changed around me. One thing I realized, and that a few people have realized actually, is that there aren't any Christmas beetles anymore. So when I was say, in primary school, every around Christmas, around December, it's really hot. And there were the, the all of these beetles in the playground, like these beautiful, like iridescent little beetles. And because that's when they appeared, they would be called Christmas beetles. And somewhere along the line, you can't really put the date on it, but I can't remember the last time I saw one. You know, there's just, and, and it is, obviously ecosystems are complex, but it is, it, it is, at least it must, it, it's related to climate change. No one knows, you know, and the changing temperatures and so on, and probably other, maybe, I mean, you know, <laughs> ecosystems are complex, but it's not not about climate change. So that is one of those sort of creepy little things that I might never see a Christmas beetle again, which is very strange. Um, in terms of how the sort of horrific bushfires have affected people, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it's changed everything and other times it feels like it's changed nothing. And I feel that almost there's been this collective um, silent decision made not to reckon with it. Um, so... There was a sort of a sort of flashback to the bushfires earlier this year when there were massive floods in New South Wales. And the word climate change was not mentioned across the media. You could not find it. And what was instead being celebrated was this anecdote of these people who were going to have a wedding at a luxury resort and they couldn't get there because stuff was flooded. So they hired a helicopter to get over the flood and they went ahead with their wedding anyway. And so there's this mix of sort of willful blindness and working around and this undertone or not so undertone of ecofascism. So from supposedly left-wing NGOs, for instance, you have this idea being pushed that because of the terrible fires, and this was something which came out during the fires, Australia needs to mobilize against climate change like it's a world war. And you have quite senior people from the defense ministry, and from the army saying things like that. And you have demands to send in the troops when there's a bushfire. And this is in spite of the fact that the troops in fact have set quite a few, quite appalling bushfires. So, the psychic response broadly, I would say, is ignoring it. Um, and quietly preparing psychologically and logistically for the deployment of violence against, well, the deployment, I suppose, of imperialist violence to secure the future of the Australian nation. I think children seem to be much more affected by it. So there was recently this court case, which, you know, 
in many ways is positive, I suppose, where there's some children brought this this court case and one, the idea that a particular government department has to consider a duty of care towards future generations of Australian children in terms of approving fossil fuel projects. And this was absolutely widely celebrated. And I actually have a lot of trepidation about this because given the sort of reactionary interpretations of climate crisis, which predominate in both the Australian environmental movement and in institutions, be they political or, or whatever. Um, I think that this can just as easily turn into an eco-fascist direction of like, oh, you know, we have to, we have to repel migrants through increasingly militarized means to protect our children, or we have to secure, you know, to prevent overpopulation, global overpopulation to secure the future of our children. So there is a very dark feeling, I think, arising from these disasters, which exists in people's consciousness and is being expressed in dark. And um, I don't feel good about this, <laughs> is how I would put it. Do you see um, your role as an artist or within the activism of Australia's indigenous communities, are there a coalescing of freedom dreams or dreams that envision those forests brought back, those birds again singing, those koalas again climbing, and those reefs again um, whole? How do you see the indigenous uh, movements and voices in Australia as trying to articulate an alternative to the white supremacist necropolitics that will only bring more mass death to Australia's ecosystems. And do you see a coalescing of dreams from settlers, uh, people who've immigrated to Australia, um, as coalescing with these indigenous ones in a way that's potentially revolutionary? Yes, it's interesting that you talk about the sort of environmental renewal and that dream. And it's funny, just just when you said the dream of the, of the reef, you know, being alive again or properly alive i have just been hearing and seeing you know in my own swimming and snorkeling and stuff like not at the reef but you know in, in marine ecosystems just the sort of inevitable creeping and not so creeping destruction of these ecosystems for my entire adult life so when you articulated that idea that it could be back again i haven't even thought of this ever um I think that it's something which has just been absolutely incorporated into this kind of dread expectation of the future. I was reading this, there's this wonderful book called Talking Up to the White Woman, which is this classic really of um, indigenous feminism. And it's by Eileen Morton Robinson. And I was reading the 20th anniversary reissue edition of this book and she'd written this forward around the time of the COVID pandemic and it was interesting because she'd offered this kind of take on the you know those those, those memes about nature is healing um which are of course deployed often in this incredibly reactionary and eco-fascist way suggesting that the destruction of, of human life and you know implicitly brown people you know is 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 necessary for some kind of renewal of nature which is posited as 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 existing different from from humans as opposed to humans and nature being co-constitutive of our of our world um but i thought it was really interesting that in her introduction she brought up this idea 
of care and of kinship with the environment and of the COVID pandemic as having, yeah, kind of an unintended positive effect in terms of temporarily suspending certain destructive processes so that we could hear the birds singing and, and, and we could see the kinds and the forms of life which were being suppressed by those destructive processes. So, I mean, yes, I think that, I think that indigenous thought offers a vision of renewal and of, of seeing ourselves as part of nature as opposed to separate from nature and of finding ways to live which honor that kind of kinship that we have with animals and birds and, and trees and, and the world around us. Um, in terms of the sorts of political formations, which are a political thought, which is cohering around this idea, I am certainly trying to do what I can, both in my artistic and my political life around that. And I mean, I use the word precious a lot. This is, this is very precious to me. I suppose it's not something that I want to talk about in a specific sense, again, because of this idea that, you know, I don't think the individual should represent the collective work in, in, in that way. I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, as you can see, I'm pretty doomy about, I'm pretty doomy about this. What we've talked about today, there's obviously a space for non-human beings in our conversation that uh, when you listen to mainstream progressive discourse, um, and again, I think a quotation marks around the left is very interesting and useful because I think a lot of people are just rich. They had rich friends and they, they just like how the ruling class uh, or voices in any art or media or uh, any platform. Unfortunately, it's usually the people who share the same class backgrounds as the ruling class. There's very few Horatio Algiers. In capitalism, there's very few Horatio Algiers in progressive politics. And that's why I, I pay so much attention to scholars like Wendy, or poets like Wendy Trevino, scholars like Joy James and, and the Lumpen, because those voices are typically written out both from the history and study of a lot of leftists, Foucault never brings up slavery, uh, but also in the political decisions when left organizations do get in power. So obviously... Uh, I don't think the the peasants who marched with Mao would be cheering the Shanghai of today. I think they'd try to burn that shit to the ground. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask in terms of this question of non-human beings, why do you think we see so little of that in leftist discourse, both in Australia, but I think globally? Why is there... There's It's a whole nother kettle of fish talking about the racism of the left, the the anti-blackness of a lot of the left in settler colonies. Um, but why do you think we don't see more room for people to just say, I like birds? I would like these podcasts a hundred times more if just they were just like, they, t they did an episode about birds or how they like horseshoe crabs as a kid or Christmas bugs. Why do you think when we talk about politics, it's so abstract when the material conditions of our world are the ones that are dying and 
Oftentimes, it's beings who don't have a say or a vote for a Biden or a Trump. Why don't we have more voice? Why don't we give more voice to the beings that that don't have a decision in in these things of climate change and capitalism and so on? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I, I'm this is something that I'm careful about saying, but you know, I'm a vegan. That's important to me. Um, and my concept of leftism and of, I guess, liberation for all beings seems to me to very powerfully imply that where one has the means to do so, one should avoid industrial animal farming just because of the massive cruelty and destruction of life which this entails. I have certainly found my experiences on the left to be quite actively hostile to this, in part because there is a small but extremely vocal white supremacist vegan um, vegan <laughs> set, I suppose, who spoil it for everyone, I suppose. But I mean, I don't think that's it. You know, I was looking, I was looking at some of the some of the statistics about veganism from the US because unfortunately they're not really kept in Australia. And contrary to a lot of these discourses, you know, people who are low income and of color, like low income people of color, are the demographic who are significantly more likely to be vegan or vegetarian than wealthy people in the US. So I thought that that was really interesting. In terms of why people don't want to think about it. There's this wonderful quote from the writer Charlotte Shane, I think, that there's this idea that there's this kind of carelessness about being concerned with too many lives at once. And that if we were to consider the extraordinary suffering attendant on industrialized animal agriculture, that would imply some kind of callousness towards the also extraordinary suffering of people. Um, that's just an observation, it's not an explanation. I think that indigenous ideas of kinship with non-human beings and a family which include non-human beings and which aren't necessarily associated with veganism but which nonetheless have a kind of regard for the value of these beings which is very, very different from what exists in industrialized agriculture or industrialized Western society. You know, I think that that's something that 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 is quite profound, um, and that would be really great to orient ourselves towards. And do you see? This is the last question. Do you see your um, role in your art, uh, or one of the aspects of your art in in trying to do that? So I am being very a hundred percent literal when I say I do not understand on more like let's say podcasts or left media or like I'm going to write a huge article for New Left Review or Jacobin like where are the birds where are the turtles where are the rivers where where is the grass where are the trees like where is this sense of of you have to go through this world with all these other beings don't they amaze you or mystify you or inspire some sense of empathy or community? And it's just very odd to me that so much left discourse and writing, there's literally nothing about nature. It's, 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 it's almost inhuman to me because to be human seems to me... <laughs> and I'm just wondering any insights you could share on that, uh, particularly for younger progressive or leftists um, even our political discourse about nature is not like 
and and the Bob Brown Foundation. I do like some of their work. I'm not sure of of where they might be uh, shitty, but I do like some of the work where they're just like, we want to save swift parrots. And it's like, why? Because swift parrots are cool. Or there's really great like social media from Australian and New Zealand uh, environmentalists where it's just like, we're going to save Tasmanian devils. And it's like, why? And it's like, well, why don't you want a world with this rather than with devils than without devils? And I just don't see that at all from younger leftists um, and I just, I don't understand it. I actually just, I can, I can, I can give you a bit of understanding, I think, certainly from my own position, my own experience. So particularly in Australia, there's part, partly there's that sort of white supremacist vegan fringe. And then also particularly, I think, in Australia, there's this nationalist and quite racist, you know, idea attached to native animals as being, as, as being somehow continuous with the Australian national or nation state project so you can have see really mm. ridiculous stuff like people will dig up you know a skeleton of a plesiosaur and they'll be like oh look at this aussie plesiosaur you know fuck your aussie plesiosaur plesiosaur has no idea um mm-hmm. and because there's so much stuff about 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 native native animals and that being continuous with australianness and then that coupled with, I think, a history of conservation, which, as you would know, pits um, rhetorically the existence of brown people and yellow people, really, against the existence of animals. So you have things like the WWF, you know, and, it, and its right. emphasis on the sort of conservation of spectacular fauna in conjunction with you know absolutely atrocious acts of of literal murder against local people in the global south um so i think in the left and lots of parts of the left people people come to associate liking animals with being an eco-fascist or 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 some kind of cover for being a white person and they do do it you know i get nervous and it's terrible and it's perfectly understandable and it's terrible. But even amongst my white, you know, white left friends who I love and trust, like I do have an instinctive nervous feeling of fear sometimes when I see them being nice to their pets. And it's terrible because I love my pets and it's great to love your pets. But this idea that white liberals and white progressives counterpose concern for animal life with denigration of racialized life. It's a real phenomenon. Um, I can actually think, you know, it's, 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 it's a really, not one, but I think two separate people, white progressive identified people in Australia have said to me in the same breath, something like, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter, the uprisings, they wouldn't say uprisings, they'd say the riots. It's so sad. I try not to look at that. I just look at cute videos of dogs, you know, or that, that video of that woman in Central Park in the US who like tried to call the cops on that black dude looking at birds and he was just enjoying the birds. And then I remember some of the white progressives of my acquaintance saying something like, well, the thing I'm concerned about is the way she's treating her dog. So there is a kind of reflex thing where a certain kind of racist white progressive who doesn't see themselves as racist for some reason performatively or, or posturing postures as a lover of animals 
when they are called on their racism or when racism is brought into their field of vision. And so there's, I think, part of it is this kind of horrible backlash against that. And so one of my very, very brilliant comrades and friends, we were having this conversation and, and we sort of worked out this together. And my brilliant comrade and friend actually just looked at me and went, oh my God, we we're doing lateral violence on the cats. So that, I think, maybe explains some of it. Well, uh, SL, it was really fun talking to you. I want to let you go because I'm sure you have to use the restroom. That's the problem with really long, long podcasts. You have to, yeah. Um, was there anything that we um, uh, didn't bring up or the, uh, any platforms you'd like to center where people can find your work Um so what final thoughts would you have, if any, on, on what we discussed today and where can people find out more about you if they enjoyed our conversation? I would really encourage people to look up the Out of the Woods Collective. And I did not write this book, but I joined after this book was written. But there's a really wonderful book written by the Out of the Woods Collective called Hope Against Hope, which looks, yeah, yeah, which tries to explore some of the questions we've been discussing about climate and a sort of way of living which um, is centered around common life as opposed to extraction. Um, yeah, and in terms of my novels, I've got two novels out, Real Differences and Revenge. Um, and if you're not in Australia, you can probably get them, you can get them online as an ebook or whatever. And, and you can probably just Google my name, SLLib ebook, and Google will probably do its thing. But yeah, thank you so much for this chat. Thank you.